Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films and the people that made them and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film history one memory at a time. Tonight, we welcome a woman who is a true legend in our business as a casting director on films like The Godfather and Love Story, and later a super agent for international creative management, plus a driven activist for animals, particularly horses, and the subject of a charming children's picture book entitled Trooper at the Beverly Hills Hotel by Susan McCauley. Let's welcome Connecticut native Andrea Eastman. Hi, Andrea. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm so glad to get you on on our cast. Um, you know, it's interesting. There are so many stories in Hollywood that are just not told. I'm not quite sure why, but it, it requires, you know, finding the right people with the right stories. And when Billy Reback, my writing party partner, told me that he met you at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and I, your name just rang right into me. And I said, oh, my God, we got to get it, Andrea on the show. And I'm so happy to have you here. Uh, I, well, thank before, you. before we talk about your background and, of course, the films you've worked on and the people you've met, <clears throat> I'm kind of curious. <laughs> I'm curious what you think of the movie business today. Um, it's It's changed quite a bit. Some people say it's still the same business. It's just a, a lot stranger in many ways. But from an overview, I find personally that people are more rude today and that uh, storytelling has gone into kind of a steep dive. People have gone into, you know, kind of the same kind of movie over and over again. Some people, of course, love all the science fiction and fantasy and, and adventure films with the big special effects. Uh, I like story as well. Um, I don't want to knock anybody who can get a movie made because you sweat bullets to get anything done in this business. But in terms of what you see in the films you want to see, do you feel the film business has radically changed? I completely agree with you. I don't like what's out there now. I mean, there are a couple of good movies that you actually want to go see. But no, I used to love movies. I mean, it was my life. And we we cared so much when I was at Paramount in my twenties, we, we loved making movies and really, and, you know, looking be even before when I was involved in the movie business, uh, movies were great. And today, you know, there's very few movies that I even care about or want to see. And I think it's, people are rude. Um, when I was an agent, I would read scripts. I read everything. I guess agents really don't read anymore. I don't want to offend anybody, but I'm told they actually don't read. People don't talk on the phone, they text or they email. I mean, it's a very difficult business and strange business and in many ways a sad business because there was a lot of glamour and history and and fun to the movie business. It was tough, it was a very tough business to be in, but I loved every minute of it. So when you were a little girl in Connecticut, were were you in a family that loved to go to the movies? No. Actually, but my father was a radio actor years ago, um, but we never went to the movies. I'd go to the movies. I saw On the Waterfront, this is sort of going to date me. I mean, I was really young. I saw On the Waterfront like seven times and was madly in love with Marlon Brando. 
and then of course Marlon Brando wound up being in The Godfather. But I loved to go to the movies, and um, but I didn't. I actually wanted to be an actress, but I I was terrible at it, so I decided to go on the other side. Did you go to a university? I did, but I didn't learn anything about the movies. It's a long story. I went to kind of a snotty junior college because I'd always gone to public school with all girls and I really didn't like it at all. And I dropped out after, um, after I guess a year and a half. And I just, I didn't want to go back. And so my parents said, you have to go back to college. And so Ohio State was on the quarter system. So I wound up going to Ohio State because my mother was from Cincinnati. So we drove out there and I learned one thing in college and I learned football really well. <laughs> well, Ohio State, I'm sure that wasn't difficult. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, I, to this day, I mean, um, my ex-husband actually said to me, wow, you could be a coach. What do you call here? So I do love football. I don't like the violence of it, but, but I was always interested in the arts and um, I was in a play when I was at Ohio State and I was cat on a Hobson roof. Really, I was really bad, actually, I'm sure. Did you did you um, play Mag did you play Maggie the cat? I did. I'm looking at you, Brick. I still remember the first line. But um <laughs> I, I I did, but um, you know, my father said something. He goes, Unless unless it's the one thing you want and and it's it's so passionate that you will do anything to be an actress, you know, it doesn't work. You've got to have that drive and that passion. That's why when people say they're they study forever, it's not. It's fine to go to acting school, but if you don't have it, you don't have it. So, what was the path after Ohio State? What was your first job of note? Well, I can't say it was of note. I was um, a secretary at they were called secretaries then at an ad agency, and you know, I never wanted a career. I mean. I didn't think I wanted a career. I mean, people got married and had kids, which is why I didn't really understand why women bothered to go to college. But um, when I got a job, I dropped out of college after, sounds like I drop out of things. I really don't. I dropped out of college after two years because I didn't want a curfew anymore. And I got a job in Manhattan and I had a little apartment with my roommate um, from college, actually. And um, I would say my, my very first real job. I was a secretary at something, Ashley Steiner, which then morphed into Ashley Famous, which actually became ICM, the company I ultimately worked for. And um, I'd taken one semester of typing in college and one semester of shorthand. I mean, nobody listening to this probably even knows what shorthand is. Um, and so Jerry Leiter, who is still alive and was my boss, would dictate letters and they would go sell television shows all day and then I would look at this scribble and I go oh my god what did he say and I try to like piece it together and type out these letters for him and finally one day he said you know what I don't know whether to fire you or to promote you because you're really good on the phone and luckily he promoted me so he promoted and, you uh, to a to a junior agent yes to a junior agent at Ashley Steiner and my first two clients were the two guys who wrote hair. Um, they they were sharing an apartment in Newark, New Jersey, and they said they were working on something that they really believed in. And they came in with all these pages and they acted out hair. And I remember looking at it thinking, 
wow, this is either going to be a phenomena or a disaster. And um, and then from there, I got a job um, as assistant head of casting at Paramount. And then that was kind of the beginning of my career. I worked um, for a woman named Joyce Selznick of the Selznicks. And oh, sure, very famous woman. Very famous. Yeah. Remember her? Uh, who suggested this Paramount job? Did you just hear about it or did you go after it? Um, I heard about it and I went and um, interviewed for it. And I was making $75 a week. And um, <laughs> Charles Bludorn, when I was there, Charles Bludorn bought the company, Gulf and Western. And um, Joyce, who unfortunately was an incredibly difficult person, but I wound up liking her was transferred to the West Coast. And after a year, she was fired. And I was, I just turned, I was either 25 or I just turned 26. And I was named worldwide head of casting. I had two assistants and um, they raised my salary to 300 a week. And I don't know, I loved it. And suddenly I had, you know, this was in the 60s. So women didn't, you know, mini skirts and, you know, so, um, a lot of women, not a lot, there were like practically no women in the industry. And so people thought, well, how could she possibly get her job? She must be sleeping with Charlie Bluedorn. Um, <laughs> but, but I wasn't, and I was, you know, fearless. I wasn't afraid to tell him the truth. And um, so and you, you, you he, get on the, you get on the Paramount lot, excuse me, you get on the Paramount lot. Where is your office? No, no, no. It, it was in New York. It oh, was, so you um, started in New York. Okay. In New York, it was at the Par it was the Paramount building. Um, right. I think it's 1401 Broadway. And then we moved to um, the Gulf and Western building, which is now a Trump Plaza hotel, a Columbus Circle. I was on the 33rd floor, I remember, very well. But I loved it. It was like, we were like a family. Working for Robert Evans was just amazing, frankly. Um, very smart man. And Charlie was really my mentor. And you know, I, I mean, I, Charlie just, I just adored him. And um, I always got know, the, yeah. I got the impression that he loved movies, that he was actually one of these executives yes. or owners yes. who actually loved movies, right? Yes, he totally loved movies. And um, yeah, Char Charlie was great. Did you see the offer by Nick Jan? Not only did I see the offer, I've been telling everybody I meet to go watch the offer. I thought it was terrific. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of it's not completely accurate. I mean, they play Charlie a little over the top. And the person who plays me is, she's great. But it's not, I'm five feet and she's 5'10", I think. Um, and a lot of, the first time I'm introduced, my character, you know, I give a, a list of people that I was su suggesting. And I went to the premiere and she reads off Danny Thomas. I almost stood up at the premiere and said, I would never suggest Danny, Danny Thomas for The Godfather. But. But it was fun. I actually loved the offer, even though it wasn't accurate. But the stuff with Columbo and Al Ruddy really was pretty accurate, actually. Well, the um, the thing I loved about the offer, and for the listeners who aren't familiar with the offer, it's a miniseries, a limited series on the making of The Godfather on Paramount+. Plus. And at a time when a lot of television shows are very dark and thrillers are just very, very 
pessimistic stories. This was absolutely fascinating. I have to say I'm a sucker for Hollywood stories, but tell us a little bit about how the guy, like from your point of view, I'm I, I'm sorry if you've told the story many times, but I'd like to know where it started with you. What was your first move in the direction? Well, the Paramount bought um, a treatment by Mario Puzo. It was 80, it was 80 pages because we had made a movie called The Brother, The Brotherhood, which wasn't successful and they didn't, I mean, a lot of it was accurate. I mean, quote unquote, the suits, you know, the, the executives did not want to make the movie. And so then it became a book. And then, of course, it became a huge bestseller. Um, I mean, there were lots of problems. And Francis really disliked Paramount Pictures enormously. I mean, he really did not like the studio. And, you know, we I worked with a man named Fred Roos, who um, was Francis's head of casting. I'd never actually worked with another casting director before. And, you know, it was, I mean, we were, we were casting what was, I mean, everybody wanted to be on The Godfather. It was, it was pretty extraordinary, actually. And, um, you know, there are lots of stories about how the cast came together. And um, there were very few people who believed in it so much. Al Ruddy really believed in it. The producer, Robert Evans, really believed in it. And obviously, Francis and Mario believed in it. And, and Charlie wound up believing in it. Um, but I don't think they ever imagined that it would be what it was, which is considered one of the all-time great movies. There was a, a story going around that I was able to ask Mr. Ruddy at a screening a couple of years ago. I'd heard that Richard Castellano or Castellanos, who played Clemenza, was the highest paid actor on. And I went up to Mr. Ruddy and he dispelled that notion. He said it was more of a favored nation in terms of the money. Yes, I can tell you exactly what it was. Everybody got $35,000, um, everyone. And Brando got a hundred. And um, I wasn't asked, I, I, I negotiated the deals and I wasn't asked to get options on anybody. Gulp. So then Godfather two happens and they, you know, the act, I wasn't at Paramount anymore. And um, I would have stayed at Paramount forever and ever and ever, but um um, it's a long story, but, you know, I was very, very close to Bluedern, as I said, and then Frank DeBlanc became president, who I thought I was close to, and then he just became kind of a jerk, and I wound up leaving the company, so um, he, he did something that wasn't very nice to me, but um, so so I don't, you know, I don't know after that, but... Um, would, would, was there ever was there ever a real choice other than Brando that you thought could actually happen? Or was it really, we got to get Brando? Well, it was Mario Puzo's idea for Brando. That was his idea. And everybody thought it was a great idea, including Francis. And, you know, he did that famous silent test where he put cotton in his mouth. You know, I actually watched the test with, with Blue Dorn on this little television in the hallway in New York at Gulf and Western, he was, but you know, he was, I mean, he was a scary, it was just, are you, he's not saying anything on you, blah, 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 but I said, but you can look at, it. look at the jowls, you can see it, you know, it took a lot of convincing for them, and then, um, I don't know if you remember the scene where I'm sitting on the, on the desk, and, you know, we called to make Brando's deal, and, um, and in the, in the offer, anyway, but, you know, everybody did get on board with Brando, and of course, you know, it, it turned out to be, and it was collaborative. I can't take the credit for it. It was, I mean, certain people I was responsible for, but 
it was collaborative. You know, Evans was, was, was very involved in it. Was his, I mean, Brando's reputation at that point was he had been in a number of bombs. In fact, uh, I've heard I've heard some people say that he was toxic, but it seems to me that what you're saying is there was not a lot of pushback on Marlon Brando. No, well, there, yeah, there was. There was from, there, there were from the executives in the company. There were. I mean, Bob Evans be, um was shown the test and he thought he looked at it and he thought I think he can do it but nobody else wanted him and we certainly didn't want to pay him and um but he had it's Marlon Brando even though he was in some bad movies but he just he just embodied the role of the godfather I mean I thought he was you know I had like I had Carlo Ponte on my list I thought you know he had the stature to do to do that but Brando, there's nobody that could have played it like did you, Brando did, and I. Yeah. Andrea, did you just say Carlo Ponti, the producer? Yeah, just the way he looked in his stature. So you're talking about, uh, about him acting as 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 the Godfather? Yeah, we all thought he could be interesting. Yeah, I mean, when when you're a casting director, you try to think you try to think out of the box. Absolutely. Now. So, the other actor who makes the movie in so many ways is the young Al Pacino. Uh, what what yeah. did you know at the beginning about Al Pacino? It was it your suggestion, or did that come from Puzo as well? No, that came. No, uh, what happened was um, Francis wanted Al Pacino. I always wanted Jimmy Kahn. Um, Robert Duvall was set from the get go. He didn't have to test. Um, and so, because Al Pacino is not a particularly tall person, the test, the test that they all did, Al Pacino, just nothing, nothing popped off the screen when we tested Al Pacino. And Francis had run something called B-roll up at his place in um, in Northern California, and Jimmy Kahn just exploded off the screen as Sonny. And so we decided to test Jimmy Kahn also for Michael. So there were endless tests between, you know, I mean, like everybody was testing. And so, um, so Jimmy Kahn was really good. And I mean, but nobody was great in that particular scene. It was a, a talking scene at the wedding where you couldn't, you didn't get the feeling that Al was sort of dangerous or he didn't, he didn't seem to have the, the, in that particular test, you know, he, and he was of course brilliant in the movie. So it came down to, so Francis left and said, I'm not going to use the word on the radio, but he said, just cast my what, um, a, a word, my movie, I'm going to Sicily. I don't care, just cast my movie. I'm going to scout locations. And so um, now Francis had run into an actor at a bar in Brooklyn named Carmine Caridi, and he was a big kind of affable Italian guy. And he goes, you know, you're perfect for Sunny." you're going to play Sonny and poor Carmine Caridi gave a party celebrating that he was Sonny, but nobody ever asked me to make his deal. So um, I've told this story a couple of times because I remember it like it was yesterday. And so, um, so there are four of us, it's Charlie Boudon, Robert Evans, Stanley Jaffe, who was president and me were in this screening room at the Gulf and Western building. And we watched um, Panic in Needle Park, Al Pacino's first movie. And he was, amazing the guy just explodes off the screen 
Now, Charlie never got mad at me, ever, ever, ever. So then he starts yelling at me because we decided it is going to be Al Pacino. And Carmen Carini has been off of the role. And so he goes, oh, yeah, this is our most important movie. And we had this little pipsqueak playing Michael. And you've got this big Goomba playing Sonny. And I go, well, do you remember why we tested Jimmy Kahn for Michael? Because he was so good as Sonny. So I said, why don't we go back to Jimmy as Sonny? I mean, Pacino will be Michael. And he was amazing in his movie. And Jimmy Kahn will be fabulous as Sonny because we already saw it. And Stanley Jaffe goes, no, you just feel sorry for him. I mean, sorry, Robert. Yeah, Stanley Jaffe said, you feel sorry for him. And Robert Evans says, no, she's right. And that's how Jimmy Kahn got the part. And I ran upstairs and made a deal before anybody changed their minds. Excellent. Now, what about John Cazal? He was like a collaborative, you know, was, everybody agreed that he was right. Um, for Fredo. It, yes, yes, I think. That was not my my idea. I think that might have been Fred Russo's idea. And I I assume that Francis brought his sister's name up to play Connie. Uh, yes, but she was amazing, Talia. Yeah, but but she was perfect, right? I mean, she was wonderful. Talia Shire was fantastic, and um. So and 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 we all agreed on Diane Keaton. She was on my list. She was on Fred Roos's list because we thought, again, thinking out of the box, she'd done Woody Allen movies. That's an interesting way to go. Sure, sure. Um, did you um, are you cast the movie? Did you get a chance to see some of the filming? Yes, actually, Blue Dorn and I drove to the set you know, where the house was on Long Island one day. Right. And, uh, and they were changing, they were changing the setup. You know, as we know, when you move cameras, you, you stop and you, you know, it shuts down for like 20 minutes or so. So when we got there, there, the whole, like the crew's all playing Frisbee. Right? So Charlie goes, what, what the hell is going on with my money? People are playing Frisbee. <laughs> so I go, Charlie, they're, they're just moving the cameras around. So, um, so we went in the house to say hi to 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 Brando and Jimmy Kahn and Al. And I remember Jimmy Kahn and Brando mooned us. <laughs> of course they did. <laughs> uh-huh. It's great. Oh, that's great. That's great. I mean I mean it's it's the best I have to say it was the best time in my life. It was just it was it, it was just great. And I Adored Al Ruddy, he was a great producer. Gray Fredrickson, our associate producer, was wonderful. You know, Francis, I mean, Francis, you know, eventually forgave Paramount and, you know, it was a big family. I mean, but they're always fighting about the budget, but it was terrific. So the movie gets made, and obviously there's a lot of hoopla about a movie about The Godfather. You're saying that the some of the trouble, I mean, from what I hear, the, the miniseries they offer indicates there was some uh, pushback from certain elements of the of the organized Absolutely. crime world, uh, and that that is all true. Yes, and Ruddy, I went to lunch actually. He invited me. I'm not sure why I was ever invited to this lunch, but I went to lunch with Al Ruddy, Joe Colombo, uh, Joe Colombo's bodyguard, a man named Mr. Butter who was seated next to me, 
who I found out was the biggest hitman for the mafia afterwards, and uh, Gray Fredrickson. And, you know, Al was terrific. I mean, he, you know, what that, that's pretty accurate, what you saw in The Godfather. That was, that was very accurate, actually. You know, and Columbo really, they had a, a mutual respect for each other. And we had to get permission from the mafia to shoot. In fact, some guy was making me crazy. He kept calling me in the office and kept saying he was Mr. Dante, who I didn't even know who Mr. Dante was. And one day um, he calls me at home on a Saturday. He goes, is this Andre Eastman? Yes. He goes, okay, girly, listen and listen closely. I go, he goes, if you don't use Mr. Dante, you watch out and forget shooting the Godfather in New York. In fact, forgetting, forget shooting the Godfather altogether. Got it? And I go, yes, I got it. So at my lunch with Mr. Butter sitting next to me, I was bored. So I told Mr. Butter the story. He goes, you want me to throw the guy out a window? I go, no, 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 that, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, who, who did Mr. Dante wanted you to use? It wasn't Mr. Dante. It was somebody telling me I had to use Mr. Dante. I didn't even know who Mr. Dante was. But whoever that person was who was calling me, I never heard from him again. I certainly hope he wasn't thrown out a window. Did the studio invite you to the Oscars? They they did invite me to the Oscars, but I had I had left Paramount by then. Okay, I know you don't yeah. want to go into a I long. Had, I, had, I had gone. I had gone to work for ICM. I was in. Um, yeah, it was it was no, it was actually famous, which later became ICM. So you obviously. But I was very, but, yeah. Go ahead. So I was just going to say, you must have been dissed up the yin-yang to leave Paramount, which you would said would have stayed forever. Well, I was heartbroken to leave, to be honest with you. And um, I mean, you never know things happen for a reason, I guess. And, you know, I mean, Charlie was my family. And I mean, it was something that Frankie Blondes did to me, which was, you know, was anyway, I'm not going to go into it. Um, and um, about four months later, I was on a plane um, going to LA and Charlie was seated next to me. And, um, and we, you know, he was really upset and I told him exactly what happened. And we, you know, it was a very warm, incredible experience sitting next to him. I hope you can still hear me because someone's calling in. Oh, no, I hear you. I hear you Are totally. We... Uh, no, completely. Okay. Um, so you decide that it's over at Paramount. So, um, you had worked for Ashley Famous before you got the Paramount job, right? Yeah, it was like back was like a tennis match, right? So um, right. I had been I had been offered a job. Um, it went from Ashley Steiner to Ashley Famous. I had been offered a job while I was at Paramount. They kept calling and said, "Do you want to become an agent again?" And I said, "No, absolutely not. I do not want to be an agent again." And so when this particular thing happened. I called and I said, well, you know, I'm interested. And so I had lunch with a guy named Paul Rosen, who was the head of the New York office. And I was offered a job. They doubled my salary. And um, it was over not going to the, it was, it was over. I had put love stories together, helped put it together. You know, it was a book. Um, it was a script first. And I was very involved with Bob Evans, and I had I'm sorry, you know, which, put which, Allie. You're talking about love, love story. Love story. Love story. Right. And I had put Allie. I had put Allie in uh, Goodbye Columbus, and so I was very much a part of Love Story. And Frank became president 
um, kind of aced um, Stanley Jaffe out. I mean, Frank and I were really friendly. He was head of distribution. So I was going to the Oscars because Love Story had been nominated for seven Academy Awards. And so he goes, he said, nobody's going this year except Charlie and me. That's it. And I, I was like, what? So I, we all, I mean, I was supposed to be going with a guy named Can, Tommy Cannabaum, who was um, the head of television for us at the time. And he goes, no, you can't go. And I was, I mean, I was kind of childish, but I was devastated um, because I'd never been to the Oscars and I really wanted to go. And um, and so he goes, well, if Charlie says you can go, you can go. So Frank goes out to California and so I asked to see Charlie the next day. And, you know, I, I, you probably shouldn't do that after the guy's just been named president. So I tell Charlie, you know, Frank won't let me go to the Oscars. He looks at his watch. He goes, you have a plane to catch. You're going. So I'm all excited. So I go down to my office and I call Tommy Tannenbaum. And I go, Charlie says I can go. Well, I'll see you. And Frank happened to be in his office. And he said, if you get on the plane, you're fired. Oh I, I have no idea. I know it was pretty severe, right? I mean, it was very, I, first of all, I cried. And then, then that's when I called Paul Rosen and, you know, I was heartbroken. It's like, why would you do that to me? But Andrea, you know, so let me, let me ask a quick question and maybe I'm wrong. Isn't the, uh, isn't the uh, timeline, isn't love story pre Godfather? Yes, it was. So you you get dissed uh, on going to the Love Story Oscars, but you're still working for Paramount for a couple more years, right? Well, I worked for, I'm just trying to think timeline. I left Paramount. I think I left Paramount and I was gone when, when The Godfather was released. I was long gone. Um, so yeah, I left, I left, I left right during the Oscars. Um, for Love Story, and Love Story was before The Godfather, yes. Yeah, so that Oscars were in March 71. Godfather gets released the following year in 72. Yeah, so you were, 72. Okay. I was gone. Okay. You were already gone. I, I got it. I got it. And now you decide to be a talent agent. So you get to IC, well, you get to what will become ICM. Who was your first client? Um, Christopher Reeve. Really? Mm -hmm. This was after Superman. So let's see. He gets Superman in 77. No, no, no. That's, no, no, no. That's not true. He was my first client at ICM. So my first client at Ashley Famous. Oh, my goodness. Because I went, I was at Ashley Famous. Then everybody I was working with at Ashley Famous left. I became an, a manager and went back. And ICM. So I'm, I'm sure the listeners are going to think what they're going to get confused. So the, who was my client? Who what? It wasn't Christopher Reeve. He was my first client in 1984 when I was at um, ICM. So this is 1972 that I go to um, IFA. They moved me. I think Peter Boyle was my first client. Oh, okay. Had he had he had he done Joe yet? Um, yes, he had just done Joe. So he became my client. I put him in Young Frankenstein. Oh and, my um, God! What what did you? Yeah, did... we had we had a we we had. I, I just had dinner actually with his widow a week ago. Um, so I loved Peter. Yeah, Peter, Brenda Vaccaro, um, 
trying to remember all the old, the old, uh, um, Dick Benjamin, Paul Apprentice, Catherine Roth. Um, did, did you, when did your association with uh, Sylvester Stallone begin? Well, I actually knew him because my mentor at IFA was a woman named Jane Oliver, and she became his manager. And so when I moved to L.A., um, so I met Stallone probably before Rocky. I met him. I met him during Lords of Flatbush. Right. Because um, my my actually Martin Davidson, who directed Lords of Flatbush, I shared an office with when I was at IFA. So it's all complicated. But Jane Jane became his manager, and um, and she was he was actually married at my house in 1975. She was staying at my house and. LA. I had moved to LA already. And, um, and she kept saying, so I, she kept saying, You're, we're working on something that's going to just, it's going to be a masterpiece. So I, I vaguely knew Sly. I just met him, but, you know, so I knew him before Rocky and, um, and we were, you know, we were friendly. Um, so I've known him a long time, long, 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 long time. And he's, when you had your heart surgery two years ago, he sent his private jet for you. Yes, he did for my dog and me. And I went back on, it wasn't his jet, he leases them. Um, that's just, just so. that's amazing. He's, he can be a very generous man. And, and he's a, I did a, I, I write for um, Cinema Retro occasionally. And we did a 40th anniversary of Rocky piece six years ago. And uh, I got a chance to talk to a lot of the people about Rocky. It's amazing how tough it was for Sly to keep demanding that he play that role because nobody seemed to want him in that role. No, because, because, he was, because he wasn't known. And, and Jane Oliver was responsible for not, not letting anybody else be in it. She fought for him and fought for him and fought for him. And said we're not we're not selling it unless he plays the role and of course the rest is history so i took him so he was really broke um and i introduced him um to the two heads of paramount television and we had lunch with jane and fly and me and bud austin and um bruce landsberg and so um because you know he was down and out and we were making um, I, I had a, it sounds like I bounce around a lot. I really don't. I was at ICM for 27 years, but anyway, I was briefly working for Paramount television. So I took him to lunch and we were doing, um, a series about Serpico and I thought he would be amazing in it. And, you know, we left and, you know, thank God they didn't want him because then he wouldn't have been Rocky, but they said, ah, oh, Sylvester Bologna. And so I go, you know what? You're making a big mistake. You'll see. <laughs> After Rocky, I said, "See, <laughs> it's a good thing well, you didn't it, want him." It's so funny that the movie is such a metaphor for his real life because he was the ultimate yeah. underdog, and yeah. uh, it's interesting if you look at the history of that year. Uh, that was the year we saw Network and all the President's Men, and Nash, uh, uh, the other one movie was the um, the movie about the. Um, the musician on the road. Um, trying to remember the name of that movie, but it was a the, the Rocky was also the underdog at the Oscars and yeah. just walked away with everything. So and then, he, and then it yeah. gets 
and he got best writer and best picture. Right. No, exactly, exactly. So you're working at ICM all those years. Tell me, I mean, you worked with so many people. Did you have a good experience with Barbara Streisand? Was that fun? I, I had a terrific experience with her. Terrific. She didn't want to do Meet the Fockers, and, you know, she wound up doing it. That's kind of a long story. But, yeah, I think with Barbara, she can have a reputation for being difficult. But if you if you're respectful and you do what you say you're going to do and you do your job, you know, she's just very professional as she should be. So I never, she and I never had a crossword. I thought, and but in fact, when I had open heart surgery, I was under her foundation at Cedars. She was great. You know, it's interesting. So when I, I, I have nothing. I have, no, I, I thank her in my book. I have nothing but great things to say about her. I always, it's funny because when she made Yentl and was a director I thought that would be something she would do more of. And I was kind of surprised that she didn't direct anything after that. Believe me, she wanted to. So, you know, people thought she was difficult. You know, but I, but I had, you know, I, she really, she liked the script of Meet the Fockers. The, they first, when they, whatever they, they first, the first offer was insulting. It was a long, it was a long battle to get where we got to get her to do the movie. But luckily it all worked out. You know, it's it's interesting to yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, it's 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 fine. It was just, it was it was. I was on vacation in the islands, and it's before they had like little cell phones, so I had to rent this big, clunky cell phone. I'm on the beach the whole time, dealing with trying to make her deal for Meet the Hawkers. It's what I was going to say is that as a producer today, trying to find talent for movies. It's uh, it's very challenging because ever since the studio system broke up back in the late 50s and early 60s, there's no factory anymore for making stars. So it happens kind of haphazardly. And if you look at the number of actors today who have meaning for the marketplace and it hasn't changed much in 30 years. And it's 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 like there's it's it's hard to cast movies today when you have 10,000 producers wanting the same person. Well, and they, yeah, you, we've never used to see that. You'd see one or two producers. So it's, you know, now today, just not one studio makes a movie. There's all sorts of people who put money in, which is why you see this production company and that production company. And they're like, you see like 12 production companies in the credits. Well, let me ask you a question then, because this is one that faces Billy and I when we go into the marketplace. Uh, like you said, nobody wants to read anymore. They only look at the offer sheet and then they decide if they want to treat you like a citizen. I assume back in your day when you were working at ICM, if you, if you saw something interesting, you would bring it up to your clients, right? Yeah, I would. Yeah, and I, I mean, yeah. I would read. So I would go back and forth a lot from New York to LA and you know, I would I would carry like six scripts on the plane, and sometimes I'd start reading a script and I'd get like a quarter of the way through, and I go, "Oh God, I already read the script." So, um, yeah, but I read I I read a lot, you know, and I really read. And I think one of the things that Barbara was impressed about was she would send me stuff to read, and like she quiz you, you feel like you're going to school, and and I could I really read it, so you know she would quiz me on so not that she she would want to know because she's very detail-oriented, and I was able to answer what she asked me. Sure, sure. How did you meet Allie McGraw? Well, Martin Davidson, it's funny, Martin Davidson, who 
um, I shared an office with it at um, Ashley Steiner. Um, he, um, he, he brought a lot of models in to make them actresses. So he saw this picture of her um, in a magazine. She was a stylist and he had done a photo under a waterfall uh, for Chanel and she was fabulous looking. And he brought her in and she became a client. And then when I, I left there to go to Paramount, and I brought her in, you know, because I would introduce people who weren't known yet to Joyce Selznick. And so I was then working for Joyce and I was sitting in Joyce's outer office. And so Allie went in and um, I walked her to the elevator. And when she was walking out, Joyce said to her, go get your tooth fixed. So I walked Allie, if she remembers, she has that adorable crooked tooth. So I walked her to the elevator and I go, I, I don't think you should get your tooth fixed. So, um, so, <laughs> I'd always, so I'd always remembered her. And then when we were casting Goodbye Columbus, um, you know, they, we wanted Natalie Wood and she turned it down. So we tested tons and tons of people. And, um, and so we met with Allie who was 30 and she was, she just had this, you know, if you, she was, she just nailed it, frankly. And, um, I remember, so Evans never got mad at me, like Charlie, they didn't get mad at me, but I called up Evans and I go, I, I think we found her. I think it's going to be Allie McGraw. He goes, oh, you better do better than that. She's 30. So, so we wound up, we tested a lot of girls and they, none of them, you know, they didn't pop off the screen. So we, we tested Allie and one of the girls and that's how Allie got the part. What about Ryan O'Neill? Was he always a high choice? No, not at all, uh, because in those days, I sound like I'm talking at least like 100 years ago, you, people who did television series were kind of persona non grata, and he had been in Peyton Place. So, um, but he gave a great test, and that's how he got the part. I assume people I mean, like Steve, I, I assume people like Steve McQueen and Robert Redford were in the running. Um, well, we would have loved. Yes, not Steve McQueen, um, but you know Redford. Yeah, but 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 you know we actually. I'm trying to think if we ever offered it to a star. I don't think we did actually. I mean Robert Redford would have been wonderful. I mean, he can do anything as far as I'm concerned. Um, no, <laughs> I don't. I don't um, but Allie, you know, it was it wasn't that we weren't spending a lot of money on this movie at all. So I'm not sure. You know, we decided to go with with somebody who was vaguely known. So we tested. I don't. I don't think we ever offered it to anybody, a, a guy, frankly. Tell, give me a quick uh, insight into Robert Evans. He always. I mean, in the in the the TV series, I thought the actor who played Evans was terrific. Uh, was he a rather flamboyant man? I know later on he became rather flamboyant. Was he always kind of a bigger than life personality to you? Yes, I think Matthew Good played him perfectly. You know, and that was Charlie. Charlie would go, Evans. You know, it's just and he was he was amazing. He was and he had great style and you know, I mean, he really did. He um so we had three different composers for Love Story and he threw them all out. And I mean, Francis Lay was the third. He got on a plane and he was very you know, he really he was very artistic and he knew he had in his mind what it should be. And of course he was right. He flew to, to Paris and got Francis Lay to do the music. 
And what a phenomenon. I mean, your two back-to-back movies, uh, uh, Love Story and Godfather, certainly have their places in history. During this period, when you move back and forth from uh, studio casting person to agent, did you ever, were you ever offered the opportunity to produce? You know, I wasn't, but it wasn't, it, people, they weren't doing that then. I mean, and I wish right. to God, you know, I'm sorry that it was usually managers who produced for their clients. Right. I, mean, you, I don't think you just, I don't think you're just offered to produce it. You have to have a, you know, um, either a client who's going to star it in and, and then the, age, the, the manager, you know, wants to become a producer or you bring somebody a project as the producer. Right, right. What uh, what led you to leave uh, ICM after 28 years? I think it's like, I think you got to know when you're a quarterback, you got to know when you got to stop playing. Like Tom Brady should have, re- re- he should have retired a year before he did. I decided it was time for me to retire. And you'd become very much an activist for uh, horses because you used to spend a lot of time with horses, correct? Oh yeah, I still have horses. I, um, you know, I rescue I rescue a lot of horses. I'm a, but I'm an activist for all animals. I love animals so much. In fact, right lying at my feet, unfortunately, Trooper, who's in my book, and I have to like put a little plug in for Trooper at the Beverly Hills Hotel. It's on Amazon. Please buy it. It's really quick. You can read it in nine minutes. Um, I, I, I read it. it. I read it. I read it last night in eight minutes. And, and it's uh, beautifully illustrated. It's an adorable Isn't it? book. Yeah. Uh, it, it is. I think, you know, Cindy Crawford is a really good friend, put it on her Instagram page and said, you know, it's a wonderful children's book, but it's a wonderful book for adults, anybody who loves dogs. And it's just, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't write it, but I'm so, I'm thrilled with the way it turned out. But um uh, that was he was an amazing dog trooper oh my god I, I will never get over that dog he was a golden retriever he died a year ago january and um i have a little dog now named polo who i rescued from a korean meat market where they torture them and eat them oh well you we all we love the fact that you are such an animal lover because animals are our family and i i know at first hand i've fallen in love with my mother's uh, Maltese, little Kimmy. She's she's now blind. She's twelve and blind, but she's very lovable. And my best friend's German Shepherd, Abby, is a good is just a, I see her every Sunday. So I love animals. We've had a, a delicious time talking to you, Andrea. Uh, I know we could talk more about the business, but I know you've got things to do today. Uh, this has been fabulous. Well, I, it's been fabulous for me. Too, I feel like we're sitting in the same room talking to each other. And and by the way, I love the script that you guys wrote. I love it, love it, love it. I'm just gonna well, say that. We we we. <laughs> I have all my I have every part of my body crossed on this project, and I I think I almost have arthritis from crossing myself too much. But we will talk about that another day. You've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. I'm your host Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. We're on the Amazon, Apple, and Spotify platforms. We've been listening to Andrea Eastman, who just has great stories. And uh, it's been fabulous, Andrea. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. I really have enjoyed it a lot. Fabulous. Okay, bye.
Andy still there? Dan? Dan? No, no, that's completely fine. Uh, thank you so much. I'm glad we were able to get the technical stuff fixed and uh, that was great. Thank you. No, I loved it. I, I hope I can meet you before I leave. Um, when are you leaving? You're, you're, you're a wonderful interviewer. Thank you. Um, thank I'm leaving the uh, 14th of March. Well, of course, we'll meet, definitely. We're going to have to meet because uh, uh, we're kindred spirits on this project. And as Billy as Billy told you, we, we want you to become involved in producing it. I mean, oh, I, I, I really want to. I'm, I'm one of the producers of a Broadway musical right now, which I hope is going to get off the ground so i mean i'm never going to retire because then i think you get old when you retire so um i just have to be able to work and occasionally get paid for it which would be nice sure. to make, make money working but i love it and um you know i you know i've done a lot of these radio interviews so you're terrific you really are you're a lovely guy and it's you feel like bring out everything it's just easy to talk to you so thank you you're quite welcome and i'll talk to billy and we'll we'll figure out a time to have a nice lunch 